But right now, let's go ahead and go to our Savior because He is with us. And Jesus, we do come before you and we pray that you would be with us and help us this evening as we uh, seek to hear your word and become more like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would, I pray that you would be glorified and that we would give you glory by hearing what you have to say to us tonight. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is the smartest person in the world? Stephen Hawking wrote a brief history of the universe and He's written several other books about cosmology, the study of the universe. He has an IQ of 170. That's pretty impressive. Terence Tao became a mathematics professor at UCLA at the age of 22. And his IQ is 220. And he doesn't even have the highest IQ. Uh, Now I can't remember who it was who has that. But you may have heard of Rick Rosner. Has anybody here heard of Rick Rosner? He is a television producer and he's a writer for Jimmy Kimmel. And he's using his 190 points of IQ to write comedy for television. Well, anyways. Now, if you were really spiritual when I said, who's the smartest person in the world? You might have said Solomon because Solomon was purported at at least one point in his life was the wisest man on on the world. You have to wonder if when he married 700, 400 women and 700 concubines, I think he had passed his wisdom by then, you know. Would it surprise you for me to say that the smartest person in the world is Jesus Christ? Of course, now that I say that, you're thinking, well, I knew it was Jesus all along. But the fact is, we don't normally think that way, do we? In fact, if the truth were known, sometimes we think along the lines of the Russian proverb, that person's holy to the point of idiocy. Yes, that is a Russian proverb. Holy people aren't really that smart. At least, street smart is how we normally think. But then you have to ask yourself, what is smart? Most of us think of smart as people who are good at something we like. They're good at making money. They're good at making gadgets. They're good at fixing gadgets. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, defines smart as good at managing life as it really is. Smart is good at managing life as it really is. Let's go with that definition. And if you go with that definition, hands down, the smartest person in the world is Jesus Christ because only, or he is the best at managing life how it really is. And, fortunately for us, Jesus also loves us, so he tells us how to manage life as it really is in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to get good at living life? Go to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, don't only go and read the Sermon on the Mount, but trust him that he is right and that he is telling you the best advice you could possibly get as to how to manage life. 
He knows better than anyone else how the human soul works and he helps us to know how to care for that soul. The main point, or I'm sorry, he tells us how to care for this soul. And Jesus tells us how to manage life as it really is so that we can be smart people, so that we can be the kind of people who are good at managing life as it really is. Now, unfortunately, the Pharisees did not trust Jesus' street wisdom, his know-how. He had no street cred with the Pharisees. Now, as we got to last week, the main point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees was their interpretation of the law. The Pharisees were convinced that they could keep the law of Moses. And as we know, they were fundamentally, absolutely, and in every possible way, wrong. They had no smarts, as we are defining it today. And again, as we read last Sunday, leading up into this uh, sermon Jesus threw down the gauntlet when he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knew that if you and I try to base our righteousness on not doing something, which is what the Pharisees did, not doing something you shouldn't do, then you're just simply a dead man walking. That's all you are. What we need to understand and what we'll find out today is righteousness is far more than simply not doing what you're not supposed to do. Righteousness is something positive. It is a quality of being rightly related to God. And that kind of relationship can never be defined by simply not doing something. Of course, just by asking this question. Can you be rightly related to your boss simply because you haven't embezzled any money in the last year? Obviously. Now, if you are basing your right relationship, quote-unquote, with God on the fact that you've never murdered someone or you've never committed adultery, then you are interpreting Scripture like a Pharisee. Stop it! It's not meant to be that way. Righteousness, again, must be defined by something positive. Being a Christian must not be defined by being against abortion or homosexual marriage. We must be for taking care of women in crisis pregnancy. We must be for making our marriages as good as they possibly can. But... Why is it that being a Pharisee was popular 2,000 years ago and it's just as popular today? The reason is because it's so much simpler to base our righteousness on a checklist. And one of the main reasons why basing your righteousness on a checklist is so popular is because you get to decide what's on that checklist. You don't believe me? Ask any Republican or Democrat, whichever you are, they have their own righteousness checklist and they ignore everything else. Jesus is the smartest, 
wisest, most clued-in person in the universe. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells you and me the very best way to organize your life so that you too can be smart in this way. So that you can be the very best person of the version of the person you were intended to be. Now, last week, we talked about that when Jesus says our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, we talked about two possible ways that that could be meant. One way is it could be a difference in degree. Well, oh my goodness, if that's what we're relying on, we're in a lot of trouble because none of us outwardly can match the way the Pharisees were. But remember what we said when Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, it must be of an altogether different kind, a different kind of righteousness. And our righteousness can only be given as a gift from the righteous God. And that gift is reflected in the law, not in the letter of the law, but in the spirit, what that law points to. Tonight, we're going to learn that the spirit of the law is a changed heart. Now, remember we said repeatedly, the law is absolutely authoritative. It stands forever. It cannot lose its validity no matter what age you live in. But the heart, the very bottom, the point, the spirit of the law is to point you to the only one who can change your heart. The law points you to the righteous God who can give you a higher righteousness than the Pharisees as a gift. The spirit of the law is a changed heart. Now, one verse that points to that, just in case you're wondering, is Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The goal has always been deeper than merely keeping the law, as was made repeatedly clear. But this deeper than the law is only possible when the Holy Spirit comes into you and gives it to you as a gift. Ezekiel 36, 27, the Lord says through Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my rules. When by the grace of God through faith, the God the Father downloads, so to speak, righteousness into our account, then we can begin by the power of the Holy Spirit work this righteousness out. And that is the only way you can obey the law in your life because we can't do it outwardly. We're never, we, we just simply can't. We have a sin nature and a sinful heart. And if you have this righteousness, that is the kind that leaves the scribes and Pharisees in the dust. Remember, the spirit of the law is a changed heart. So now we get to Matthew 25, 21 to 48. And we get to where Jesus puts shoe leather on the law, so to speak. This is where he explains what this greater, deeper, different kind of righteousness looks like that you and I must have if we are to enjoy the kingdom of God. So I'm going to read throughout this, those 27 verses, starting 
in verse 21. Jesus says, And you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." Clearly, the law forbids murder. Don't kill anybody intentionally. Not having a malicious heart, however, not wishing to murder somebody is not only far better than not actually murdering somebody, but not having a malicious heart is the only way that the law could be truly honored. Because you don't want to kill anyone. You cannot be righteous by something you don't do. You must do something to be righteous. And in this case, as we'll see throughout this sermon, that is trusting the promises of God for you, even, even if the judge and jury say that you have a right to hold a grudge. We are not to hold malice against those who have wronged us. So what do we do? What what do we do if we have this anger in our hearts? We pray with David when David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You and I need a clean heart before you and I can be truly positively righteous. And the only way that we will get a clean heart is if God changes yours, if He cleanses your heart. Because the Spirit of the law is a changed heart. And you cannot get within a mile of the law unless He does that work. And Jesus continues. In verse 27, He says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So important is not coveting your neighbor's wife that you need to do whatever it takes not to covet your neighbor's wife. Perhaps that means for you disconnecting the internet, stopping cable TV service, using a spoon to dig behind your eye and pop it out. Oh, but of course, Jesus isn't serious here. He, he doesn't mean for us to carry on like this. This is hyperbole. This is intentionally exaggerating to make his point. 
Listen, Jesus is the master communicator. He is the smartest person in the universe. And he never says anything by accident. And when Jesus uses hyperbole, when he intentionally exaggerates, or when he tells a parable, he's always doing so, so that you scratch your head and think, I wonder what he's getting out here. What's the point of this? I want to know what Jesus is saying. When we get to Matthew 13, we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. But never allow some excuse into your heart so that you can ignore God's Word. And we, good Protestant American evangelicals, are quite good at that. Instead, we need to look at what Jesus is getting at. And in this case, if you're not going to literally chop off your hand, if you're not literally going to gouge out your eye, then think about what radical step of faith you need to take so that you won't be coveting your neighbor's wife or husband or car or job or whatever it else, else it is that you are coveting. Because the spirit of the law bottom line, what the law is getting at, what the law is ultimately pointing to is that your heart be changed by the grace of God. The law will be done in your heart when you are willing to do anything not to sin. Jesus continues, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, check this out. Divorce means that at least one in the couple has such a deceitful heart that that heart is wickedly willing to destroy the person who is closest to him or her so that they can chase a skirt. There is no pair of jeans, there is no skirt on earth worth it. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but listen, divorce is such a trauma that it destroys people and communities and countries. And no skirt can be worth that. Now let me speak for a moment to those who have suffered divorce. God can redeem any evil you have committed or has been committed against you. The point of the good news is that there is an antidote to all the bad news that you have suffered. The point of this particular passage is to say that divorce is really, really awful. And I don't need to tell that to any of you who has been divorced. Divorce is like amputating your right leg. You may have to do that so that you don't get gangrene. But it's never something that you just want to do. Fortunately, again, 
No evil that you have suffered is beyond God's grace. Speaking to people who have sinned against God more than anybody in this room, the Lord said in Jeremiah 31, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after the days of suffering, after the days of punishment, after the days of living with whatever trash has been going on in their lives. This declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The central promise of the Bible, I will be their God and they will be my people. The spirit of the law is a changed heart. God must put that law in your heart. And what you can do is ask him for it. Lord, I need your grace. I need you to put this law into my heart. Again, Jesus continues, verse 33. Again, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take for an oath Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. This is before the bottle, ladies. Sorry. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Besides, gray hair is fine. Ask any bald man. This is yet another example of God's, Jesus' street smarts. This is yet another example of just, in fact, how wise he is. An oath, swearing an oath, is both in the very first century and in the 21st century a socially acceptable means of manipulation, of trying to take it and twist someone's arm to believe you. You don't need an oath. You don't need to swear. You just need to say, this is what I'm going to do. Now, we live in a society where contracts and things like that are just a fact of life. And so be it. Sign on the dotted line. But more important than signing on the dotted line is that you know in your heart that I am going to do what I said. I am going to make my yes, yes, and my no, no. Because that is the kind of heart that God is looking for. Your righteousness can't be based on the fact that you get out of a contract because you had a smarter lawyer than him. Your righteousness comes from the fact that you had a heart that was willing to carry through it. Even if, for whatever reason, you had to get out of that contract. Do you have a trouble keeping your promises when they become difficult? Do you have trouble with wanting to keep your yes, yes, and your no, no? The good news for you and me is that way back in Moses' day, this is what God said. Moses said for the Lord, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart. He will trim off that which is unpleasing. And 
the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. Because the Spirit of the Lord is a changed heart. You will obey the law when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, Jesus continues. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Because the best that any law can do, any king, any parliament, any congress, the best a law can do is to restrict how much vengeance you can legally take. And so that was the point of Moses' law, the the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The point was so that you wouldn't go killing a person's entire family because they accidentally knocked your eyeball out. But for the heart that is consumed with the reality of the kingdom of heaven, with the reality of the sovereign God who can make everything you suffer worth it, the heart that is so consumed is willing to love the enemy who stands before you. William Barclay once very wisely said, the only way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. Now, my, my friends, what kind of heart can do that? Who, who does this kind of thing? Only a heart that is thoroughly consumed by the God who is and the God who rewards those who eagerly seek Him. What promise could we possibly have that would help us not to seek revenge for ourselves? How about Ezekiel eleven nineteen? The Lord again through Ezekiel says, I will give them one heart, a united heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone. Oh God, remove my heart of stone. I will take out that heart of stone from our flesh and give them a heart of flesh. A heart that is soft. A heart that receives the grace of God. A heart that can be changed and renewed and given new life by the Holy God so I don't have to worry about defending my honor. Because I have a God who is greater than my measly little honor. The spirit of the law is a changed heart. And you and I will obey that law only when we trust Christ to remove our stony heart and put in us a heart of flesh. Jesus is almost done. Verse 43 He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, does anybody believe that there is somewhere in the Old Testament a law that says you shall hate your enemy? No. It's not there. 
And remember what we said last week. Jesus in these verses is combating their false interpretation. He's not combating the law. Because when Jesus talks about the Old Testament, he says, it is written. But he's combating their bad interpretation. And their bad interpretation is adding, you shall hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You want to be most like God? When someone is your enemy, do good for them. Why? What example do we have, Jesus? For God the Father makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, so what? Big deal. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, you're no different. Listen, why bother getting up early on Sunday morning? What? Why not watch football when it comes on in the morning on Sunday? That's what the rest of the world does. And Lord knows, I need a, I need a day in the week to sleep in. Does anybody else feel that way? <laughs> and it would be really nice to sleep in. Why get up early on Sunday morning? Because we are to be different. And getting up Sunday morning early is just a small difference. A bigger difference is right here. You love the person who talks about you at work. You love your neighbor that plays loud music at 10.30 at night. You love the person who just rubs you wrong. Because that's what your father does. That's what your father in heaven does for you. Because he chooses to look past that and he looks at the righteousness that has been credited to your account for the sake of Jesus. These verses, if you hadn't noticed, and we mentioned this last week, these verses are a progression. You start with the basic reality of anger and revenge. And they end with having the kind of heart that loves actively seeks the good of those who hate us. And as we trust the promises of God that I've been reading through the Old Testament, we begin to have this kind of heart that says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And that is exactly what God promises us through Jeremiah I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. You don't need to seek revenge because I've got it covered. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with the whole heart. The spirit of the law is a heart that is, was stone and now is flesh. And we can only obey the law fully when God makes you one of his people. Jesus wraps up this part of the sermon. You therefore must be perfect. You have got to be perfect. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus is just using hyperbole again, right? 
I mean, he's, he's exaggerating, right? You, you need to ask the question, is Jesus serious? Does he really want us to be perfect? Okay, well, let's ask ourselves that. Can we be perfect? Well, I missed that 42 and a half years ago. Day one. <laughs> right? <clears throat> the word here that is translated perfect is a really interesting word. The word carries the idea that it is perfect or mature or complete in such a way that it is able to function as it is intended to function. So we had photocopier problems at our church recently. And when we had those problems, that machine was imperfect. Right now it's perfect. It ran all the copies I asked it to run today and no problems. It was, according to this definition, perfect. It's not sinless perfection that we're looking for. But then maybe it is because he says, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, the spirit of the law is a changed heart. The spirit of the law is a heart that God puts within us. And now that we have the righteousness of Christ, that is the way to fulfill the law. Jesus, in verse 48, is giving you and I a command that we will only be able to comply with, only be able to actually live by when the change that we are right this moment undergoing, this process of sanctification, this process of becoming more and more like Jesus, we will only be able to obey this command when God's work in us is complete. And that won't be until the new kingdom. That won't be until we receive a new body. But the good news is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The spirit of the law is a changed heart. Finally, hear all the promises that we've been reading and that are listed on your sermon question notes. Have their fulfillment. Paul promises God will do it because you can't. And because the law is one of the means to show you that you can't. But the law is honored in your life when you have a new heart. This heart is a gift from God to you. And I want you to catch these passages. I want you to go to the Lord with these passages and ask Him, Lord, where does my heart need to be changed in this area? Go home and ask the Lord to show you Lord, how do I obey the spirit of your law by allowing you to change my heart? Because that is how you will be able to actively follow the advice of the smartest person in the universe. And that is how you will be able to be good at living life as it really is. Let's go before 
that great God. Lord, you are indeed the great God. And we confess, Father, that you are the smartest person in the universe. Thank you for sending God the Son so that we would see what that looks like. And we would be able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to begin changing our lives so that we will be like you. Grant us, Lord, grant us, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us and through us for our good, for the growth of your kingdom, and finally, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.